Today is the um, Tuesday, the 22nd of May of 2018, and this is the third in a series of talks that um, I've begun on our ancestral line. Um, I mentioned, I think, at the last talk or the one before that, that during our Sangha brainstorming in February, one of the things that came out is that people wanted to have more information about the chants that we do, um, especially to make them more meaningful when we chant them. And also, I've got quite a lot of positive feedback on the um, the rather haphazard talks that I've been giving on the women masters who appear in our other chant, long chant with lots of names in it, which is the Pool of Radiance, which we introduced, I think, sometime last year. Um, but to fully appreciate that, the new chant, the Pool of Radiance, we really need to back up and look at our original ancestral line um, because the Pool of Radiance was really developed in response to what we saw as being some limitations of the ancestral line. And um, just to explain that there is a, a long version, which is the one we're looking, that's the full one with all the names in it. And there's also a short one we sometimes do, which is sort of an abbreviated version with just the, like the very most um, significant masters in it. Um, the other ones are kind of implied. Um, just for some of you may not be familiar with the Pool of Radiance, which is the, the, the second long chant. Um, the Pool of Radiance isn't a linear one, it's, it's more like circles, and it includes women masters, and this has been made possible over the last about decade because there's a lot of research being done um, almost entirely by uh, women scholars to find out more about the, ma the women masters in Japan, China, and India. And so we've got now some information sort of to back the chant up. And the other thing we've put into the Pool of Radiance is the names of many of the masters who appear in the koan curriculum that we use, but are not directly in our lineage. And this just this past May session, for the first time, we were chanting the Pool of Radiance uh, in our afternoon chanting service. And um, I don't know about the others in the session, but I found it very powerful, um, especially when the names of those masters from whom whose writings we had been reading, we were we were do, we were looking into Master Hongzhi, um when that name came up and came up in the chart, it had greater resonance. And then when we did a couple of koans at the end, um, Yangshan was in one of them, and, and he's also in the line. So there are all these opportunities for some new resonances to, to um, happen there with that, that pool of radiance. Um, but to, to go back to our exploration of our, our original ancestral line, which is a line. Um, it's the, the 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 meaning of our ancestral lines comes out of the fact that it's it's a lineage. It's our family um, genealogy, you could say, our particular branch of Zen. Um, uh, the the line that we we see going back to the Buddha, um, and and the the kind of 
the line, you could say the party line on the ancestral line, is that it's an unbroken um, line from going all the way from the Buddha up until today, um, and actually starting pr prior to our Buddha with the with the Buddhas of the past. These are Buddhas of previous this and previous eons. So we have it also has a sort of ahistorical element to it, which is an important pointer. Um, and as I said, all the power of it comes out of this, this sense that it's a, a lineage. Um, and we haven't, we haven't got so far yet. We're just, we, we've um, uh, looked at Shakyamuni, uh, Buddha, uh, Mahakashapa, Ananda, and Shanavasa. So um, our aim is in these talks, and they're going to take a while, is to go through and, and look at least maybe not spend a whole Te show on each name, but at least get some more background material, some sense of who these masters were, um, so, that, so that the chant resonates more. And, and today we're going to just look at one, who's going to be Upagupta. Um, but before I get into that, I just wanted to read um, talk a little bit about the main text we'll be using up until uh, one generation after um, Master Dogen, when it stops. But it's, it's a, a text called the Denko Roku, um, translates as the, the record of transmitting of the light. And this was compiled by Master Kazan. Uh, Master Kazan was born in 1264, it's 11 years after the death of Master Dogen, and he was um, th three generations after um, Master Dogen. And in this, this text, the Denko Rocky, he, he um, takes every name from our ancestral line and tells the story of the transmission of the light, uh, of the teaching, from um, teacher to student. Um, so the first one is Shakyamuni to Mahakashapa, the second one is Mahakashapa to Ananda and so forth, all the way through until his grandfather in the Dharma. He didn't do it about his own teacher who was still alive, it wasn't considered seemly to put in a, uh, somebody into one of these lineages while they were still alive and he certainly didn't put himself in there, um, but he was the next in line. So a very, very strong um, emphasis on, on this, this, um, this lineage and this transmission of the teaching from teacher to student. And so um, the, the, the translator of the, the text that we use, which is uh, Francis H. Cook, talks about the text having two main purposes. And, and the first one is just presenting the genealogy and this, this, this transmission from generation to generation. And you could say that having a genealogy kind of gives you a sense of where you have come from, so you can know also where you're going. And so it can instill a kind of sense of confidence. And also, uh, to some extent, a kind of legitimization. Cook points out that Zen was very new in Japan at the time that this uh, Maester Kazan put this text together, and there were it was a sort of trying to establish the 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 um, credentials you could say of this new 
um, uh, branch of Buddhism. The, the other um, purpose of the text um, was to point to uh, in each story, in each, in each verse, in each story, um, to point to the light that's mentioned in the title. What is this light that gets transmitted from, from master to student? And to point to it and, and point it out as being something we can all access, that, that we all have as our birthright. Actually, it's really as our inheritance, which ties in with the whole uh, thing of genealogy. We each um, uh, have this, this light in us and um, we can access it if we just know how to turn, you could say. If we know how to turn our light back on, our, on ourselves, we can, we, can, we can access this light and, and begin to live from it. So in this regard, um, the stories really speak directly to us about this light that we have uh, and that we can access. And just want to read a little bit from the introduction to, to the text where um, Francis Cook talks about, about this, this, this second purpose and probably the more important one in the text. He says, a number of names or epithets are given to this light. And if you hear them, it may help you as we go through these stories to, ah, that's what he's talking about. <coughs> and he lists, a, a lot of, and there are a lot of different ones. It's like Kazan is trying to come at it from all these different directions so we can um, uh, get a sense of what he's pointing to. Of course, we have to discover it for ourselves, but he wants us to, desperately wants us to um, take up that um, investigation. A number of names or epithets are given to this light. That one, that person, the undying lord of the hermitage and several others. It is likened to a pearl that is bright and lustrous without need for carving and polishing. A vermilion boat so beautiful that no artist could capture its beauty in a painting. The wind which circulates everywhere and shakes the world but that cannot be seen or touched and an icy spring so deep that no traveller can make out its bottom. The occurrence of such epithets and figures of speech throughout the text shows the author not only recording a transmission from master to disciple, in which the master finally realises the existence of the undying lord of the hermitage, but also expressing his profound reverence for this light in the heightened emotional language of poetry. And really, this text is this. This is uh, what is really marks it is, um, uh, is this poetic language that is really um, evocative and and uh, memorable that uh, helps us to understand what this light is. And he goes on with more more descriptions. It is this old fellow whom we all truly and essentially are, says Kazan. This true self has been our constant companion in life after life and has never left us. It is beyond all predications, such as pure and impure, annihilation or eternity, and is identical in fools and sages. 
it itself never divides itself into self and other or subject and object but merely wears the faces of self and other mind the objective world delusion and awakening are all nothing but names for one's true self all that we are and do is the result of its presence it gives us life and makes us die and we see and hear through the presence of this faceless fellow it is the source of our minds and bodies and even the use of ordinary discriminative thinking is the doing of this true self it's it itself is speechless and mindless has no form or sense faculties but it is not mere nothingness or emptiness it is on the contrary a reality possessed by all beings and the true place to which we all return Although we are born here and die there, constantly arriving and departing in the cycle of rebirth, the true self does not die, nor is it reborn, but it remains eternally the undying lord of the house. Um, there's also that expression used by Banke, Japanese master Banke, the unborn. It remains eternally the undying lord of the house who merely wears different faces of ordinary beings, Buddhas, demons and donkeys. When the world is periodically destroyed by fire, water and wind, it is not destroyed. In humans it is nothing but bright light, a clear, distinct knowing. We learn from the record that this true self or essential nature is the origin of all things, animal, vegetable and mineral, and remains their imperishable essential nature. And among humans it takes the form of a capacity for knowing events clearly, without delusion. This clear knowing always lurks just beneath the surface, so to speak. Whether the individual is wise or foolish, learned or ignorant, a genius or a simpleton, However, among all these, it remains obscure and non-functioning if the individual is not awakened to its existence. For most of humankind, it is obscured by delusion in the form of a tendency to discriminate between self and other, by conventional and habitual patterns of interpreting experience, by stereotyped reactions to events, by grasping experience from the perspective of the ordinary self obsessed with fear and craving, by filtering experience through the lens of some philosophical position or ideological perspective. So these, these last are the things that we um, can uh, deconstruct through our practice, see through, and therefore um, free ourselves from the power that they have over us. Now, I talked before about how the importance of this lineage is the fact that it's a lineage, um, but we shouldn't take that too literally. And this has come out over um, the last, I suppose, 10 or 15 uh, years, is um, just how, how much we really have to understand our, our lineage as being... Um, uh, our founding myth rather than than something historical 
I'm going to read another little bit from, again, from the introduction to this text and comment on some of the things in it. He says, It is probably safe to say that few, if any, any reputable modern scholars, and probably not many even within the Soto priesthood itself, believe that many of the essential events and characters in the Denko Roku are based on historical fact. Probably no one in Japan or the United States doing research in Zen history believes, for instance, that, the, that Chinese Zen began with the arrival from India of the monk Bodhidharma, or that there was a transmission from Bodhidharma to Hui Ke. Bodhidharma has now been relegated to the status of a legendary or mythic figure. Likewise, it is now generally agreed that the sixth patriarch was not Hui Nung, and that the Perform Sutra, usually attributed to Hui Nung, was composed by someone else. In fact, the real history of Chinese Zen is probably such that there could not have been anything like a sixth patriarch. It is also widely agreed that the kind of transmission of authority that did occur at a later time in China and Japan did not occur in India. Thus, it was not imported by the Chinese, but rather developed by them. The origins and early development of Chinese Zen are just now becoming clearer at the end of the century. This book was written at the end of the last century. And the gradually emerging picture is very different from the traditional Zen story found in such works as Kazan's record. Goes on to talk about how, if you look through the history of Indian Buddhism, there's absolutely no mention of the kinds of uh, one to one transmissions that um, are described uh, in, in Kazan's work. Um, though, interestingly, in Japan, Tibet, you do get similar kinds of stories of a, of a, of a kind of a mind, mind transmission, though it's not necessarily given that name. So he's, he's suggesting that the process um, seems to have developed in China. And also, the whole idea of the importance of genealogy is a very much a Chinese idea. The, the, there was such a strong Confucian um, influence in China, and the monks and nuns were leaving their families, and so there was this strong impulse, this need to establish um, another family, a Dharma family, and that's what a lot of these uh, the, is behind a lot of these um, stories of succession. The idea of patriarchal succession seems to have originated in China as a result of problems unique to Chinese Buddhism. Uh, one of these problems was the development of schools of Buddhism, such as the Pure Land and Zen, which had no Indian roots. Leaders of these schools sought for ways to give their schools authority and legitimacy, and several devices uniquely Chinese came to be employed. One of these was to insist that the school already had its roots in Indian Buddhism, India being the holy land and therefore an indisputable guarantor of legitimacy. And this was done in other fields of China, Chinese thinking too, where you would um, legitimize your, your present um, teaching, say, by attributing to, to some 
to an ancient sage, for instance. Um, a little bit later, he says, consequently, traditional Zen histories or genealogies are not true if by true we mean that the story is an account of actual historical events. However, there are other ways for something to be true besides corresponding to actual historical events. For instance, literate and thoughtful people would agree that Herman Melville's Moby Dick is a very true story, despite the fact that no Captain Ahab or ship named Picard ever actually existed. Likewise, if Scott Fitzgerald's character Gatsby is as real as any actual person who ever lived, fictional works such as these are treasured, read and reread over the generations because the stories are true despite their lack of historical factuality. Likewise, myth is a form of truth that has no historical basis. There never was a Garden of Eden with an Adam and Eve, but the story of original innocence and its loss is very meaningful to all who have reflected on human nature and human potential. The stern literalist who insists that a story is meaningless nonsense because it never actually happened is truly missing the whole point and needs to think seriously about the nature and function of myth. And it's the same with the story of the Buddha. We know that it's, it's an idealized story. It's the story of, of every man in a sense. Um, and the same with uh, Kuan Yin and other figures within our um, pantheon of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Well, and he says, finally he says, what I am suggesting is that the Denko Roku's account of patriarchal succession may be read as expressing something very true about the survival and spread of the Buddha's teaching, about the relationship between one's own awakening and that of the Buddha, and about the essential completeness and perfection of each being. Thus one may think of the Denko Roku as a way of expressing these things that may be perfectly true, despite the fact that the story has no historical basis, in fact. Expressing something very true about the relationship between one's own awakening and that of the Buddha. And that thing is that, that our awakening is, not, not, is only different in degree from that of the Buddhas. It's not different in kind. That, that we do really um, share something with the Buddha that we can uncover for ourselves. That's really the point of these of um, the, the, the lineage as an expression of this truth about the nature of Buddha, our true nature. Zen people might therefore claim with some legitimacy that the patriarchal succession has indeed taken place from the time of the Buddha, continues to take place today, and will continue to do so in the future as each individual actualizes within himself or herself that same human completeness and perfection discovered by the Buddha and pointed out to his followers and posterity. And this is um, this is really the, the we can keep this in mind as we as we read these stories that I think that will make them much more meaningful. After all, the heroic life of the Buddha 
as it has come down to us after many hundreds of years, is presented to his followers as a model of what is possible for all who undertake the self-discipline. That human perfection, so beautifully exemplified by the Buddha, is the same for all. There is not one perfection for the founder and another for the rest of his followers. That perfection has been preserved and passed on from one generation to the next, with nothing lost and without any alteration, like water being passed from one cup to another, as one Zen master put it. Zen as an institution and a way of life stands on the conviction that this is so, and histories such as the Denko Roku may be seen as ways to express this point. So, uh, with that in mind, let us now look at our, our ancestor for today, which is Upagupta. And um, this, the story that is told, the, 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 the koan, the case for Upagupta goes like this. Um, Upagupta attended Shanavasa for three years, then finally shaved his head and became a monk. And that was literal, literally left the house, which is a way of talking about becoming a monk, leaving home. Shanavasa asked him, has your body left the house or has your mind? Upagupta said, truly, it is my body that has left the house. Shanavasa said, the subtle dharmas of all Buddhas, what does it have to do with body or mind? On hearing this, Upagupta was enlightened. And the verse, house demolished, person extinguished, there is neither inside nor out. Where can body and mind hide their form? So just um, as, as before we look at this, the, the koan, just a little bit of, of more background information, some of which, which we'll be getting from Kazan's book. And I also just had a general look around for stuff about uh, Upagupta. Um, he lived in the third century BC. Some say he was a teacher of the great Indian emperor, Buddhist emperor, Ashoka. Um, his name doesn't appear in the Pali texts, and um, but he is revered in Burma, Theravada country, um, as a, a protector uh, against storms and floods in particular. He's also worshipped in parts of Thailand. Um, and there are just a few little stories about him um, in the Denko Roku. One of the interesting things is that he belonged to the uh, Shudra class. This is the was the lowest of the um, the four castes in India at the time, and would be equivalent to what we today would call the um, the Dalits or the ex-untouchables. So very very bottom of of Indian society, and yet he was uh, of course accepted into the into the order. 
This was one of the things that the Buddha really uh, uh, went against, was this whole notion of, of castes. Is not recognized. Buddha considered anyone who practiced the Dharma to be noble. He um, he entered um, into he he met his teacher at the age of fifteen, and um, and when he was seventeen, he um, was ordained. In other words, he left home. This is part of our koan. And, and then at 22, he experienced enlightenment, said he acquired the fruit of practice. It's said that um, many, many, many people came to, to uh, uh, practice the Dharma with him, so much so that the numbers of people practicing rivaled um, the numbers of people practicing at the time of the Buddha, so much so that he was called, he was sometimes referred to as the Buddha without the major and minor marks. So this is this idea that the Buddha would have these different things that you could recognize as a Buddha having, but um, here he's saying he was like a Buddha, in other words. Um, he also had this habit of um, throwing a counter into a cave every time one of his students experienced an awakening. And so then at the end of the, the, his life there was this cave which is um, roughly about uh, 35 by 24 feet was full of these, of these little sticks, short four inch sticks which were kind of tallies or counters at the time. And he uh, had somebody collect all these sticks up and um, put them on his funeral pyre when he died, so that they were all burnt when he when he was cremated. You'd ask what what was this teaching there? Um, um, think of that line in the, um, the Heart Sutra which we just chanted um, attainment too is emptiness But the most, the most interesting um, story, really, that's that's told here is the one about his pacifying of a demon. It's said that that um, that because of the number of of um, of people coming in to learn, to teach, to uh, become students of um, Upagupta, that the, the palace of a demon shook and trembled. So it's like there's an earthquake going on in this, this demon's palace. And the demon grieved and was afraid. Now demons are interesting. Um, if you read uh, stories from the Tibetan tradition, they're full of um, 
yogis, meditators being plagued by demons and stories of how the, the, the meditator would, would overcome the demons. But one thing that's quite notable about um, Westerners, this has been commented on, commented on by Tibetan teachers, is that not very many demons come and visit Westerners. And the reason is, Westerners don't believe in demons. But what does come to Westerners um, in, in spades are doubts, confusion, uh, anxiety, panic attacks, um, fears and, and, and difficulties of all kinds. So if we can look at this demon through that lens, it's quite interesting what happens here. So Upagupta is this very, very powerful teacher, obviously very charismatic. He inspires lots of people. They come in their droves. And this affects the palace of the demon, the demon which shakes. And it says that the demon grieved and was afraid. So I wonder who, who it was that really that was grieving and was afraid. Something about all that arduous practice, all those sincere practitioners coming and, and training with Upagupta, stirred something up. And the demon didn't like it being afraid and all um, stirred up and his home being sh shaken up and trembling. And he became resentful. And he watched for a time when Upagupta entered into Samadhi. And then um, it says, exercising all his demonic, demonic powers, he tried to harm the true Dharma. Of course, the, heart, the true Dharma can't be harmed. This is, this is a fundamental thing. But um, still he was getting up to kind of mischief. And um, he wasn't fooling Upagupta, who saw what was going on. But when, the, when he was in Samadhi, the demon snuck up on him and hung a garland around Upagupta's neck. You'd think that would be pretty harmless, wouldn't you? Garland of flowers. What's going on? What's going on with that? And it says that then the venerable had the idea of subduing, subduing him and meaning the demon. And so rising from his samadhi, he took the dead bodies of a human being, a dog and a snake, and transformed them into a flower garland. So a second garland now, second flower garland. Speaking softly, he put the demon at ease, saying, you offered me a very rare and wonderful garland, and now I have a garland that I want to offer to you in return. The demon was happy and extended his neck to receive it. Then the garland changed back into the three smelly corpses. Insects and worms crawled from them. The demon detested it and was greatly distressed. He could not get rid of it despite all his supernatural powers, nor could he unfasten it or move it. So perhaps if we look at this, if we look at this in, 
with a kind of a mythological eye, we see that there are two garlands. There's the one that goes on the demons, and then there's on on Upagupta, and then there's the one that goes on the demons. But in, so there's some intimate connection between Upagupta and the de demon. Let's even say that the, that the demon is an aspect of Upagupta's own nature. So what was that first garland that got put around Upagupta's neck? Perhaps we could understand it as being some kind, we don't know what, but some kind of seduction of being in this position of the as the charismatic leader of a big, a big assembly of thousands of followers. So maybe, maybe it was to do with possibly self-importance or f being concerned about reputation or, or the seductions of otherworldly things. But, but there was something in that garland which was dangerous, you could say, and, and that could in some way affect his Dharma teaching. And so he makes a second garland, which appears to be flowers, but in fact is, is, is made of corpses, smelly corpses with insects and worms crawling out of them. And he, he manages to get this garland on the demon, and it sticks, and he can't get it off. And you can imagine um, what it would be like to be walking around with a, with a, a garland made up of corpses, with, with worms crawling in and out of it. So what could this second garland, this disguised garland be? Corpses. Well obviously it has something to do with impermanence, to do with decay and death. And what's really interesting is that it gets this demon questioning things. It says that he, he rose up to the six heavens of the realm of desire. So these were the, these are kind of like the lower heavens. And spoke to celestial beings there. He also visited the Brahma heavens. They're the ones just above these ones. And so they're kind of still lower realms of spiritual understanding. But he asked in these, the second level as well, sought deliverance, it says. And the celestial beings said, this is a supernatural transformation done by a disciple who has the ten powers. We are rather ordinary beings, so what can we do about it? We don't need to go into the ten powers, but they just, they just uh, indicate advanced spiritual powers. So, so then he says, well, what can I do? And the Brahma celestials tell him to go and take refuge with Upagupta. And then if he, he did that, he'd be able to get rid of the, the garland. And they recited a verse in order to change his mind. If you fall down because of the ground, you must use the ground to get up. If you try to get up without the ground, it makes no sense. This, is a, this has become a, a kind of motto within Japanese Zen. And I don't know if it comes from Keizan or whether he got it from somewhere. If, we, you, if you, you fall down because of the ground, you must use the ground to get up. So we fall down on the ground and it hurts to fall down, but it's the very ground onto which we fall that we can help ourselves to get up with. And another way of, of, of saying this would be to say that we, we have to face our worst fears. 
we have to face the, the, the garlands of corpses that, that hang around our necks and that we want to get away from more than anything else in the world. Get away from that stink. Get away from that um, horror of, of decay. And if you think of what, what we get anxious about, what we tremble about, it's, 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 it's death and decay. It's loss of self or, or loss of life. These are the things that really plague us. But actually, they're our best friends because they get us to question. They get us to go beyond what we know and what is, uh, we, we can experience as being safe. They get us out of our palace, out of our safe rooms, and, and asking questions, going to, um, to those who might be wiser than us and, and, and looking into what we're experiencing. So the demon takes, takes this good advice, comes back down, leaves the celestial heavens and uh, pays homage at the feet of Venerable Upadagupta. And then he asks him, um, Upagopta asks the demon, are you going to ever try to harm the Tathagata's true dharma? And the demon replies, I completely take refuge in the Buddha way and will forever cease what is not good. And then Upagupta says, in that case, you must say you take refuge in the three treasures. And then the demon king joins his hands and pro pronounces the refuge formula three times. And the garland then fell off. And in India, it says in one of the footnotes that in India, to say something three times was, was practically legally binding. It was, it's considered a very serious way of, of uh, taking an oath. So this, this story, uh, this, this fairy tale, you could say, um, throws some light on our, on our, um, our koan. Um, which we don't have much time to look at, but we'll um, aim to rip through it. Um, so, just to, to go through this exchange again. Upagupta attended Shanavasa for three years, then finally shaved his head and became a monk. Literally, he left home or left the house. Shanavasa asked him, has your body left the house or has your mind? Upagupta said, truly it is my body that has left the house. Shanavasa said, the subtle dharma of all the Buddhas, what does it have to do with body or mind? And upon hearing this, Upagupta was enlightened. Need to know a little bit of background about this, this question that he, he asks. Body or mind, which one left home? Um, another way would have we put it was say, did you leave? Did you physically leave home, or did you leave home in spirit, or did you leave home externally or internally? And and these are different ways. They, they were seen as two distinct forms of home leaving. Um, to leave home in body or physically was to become um, to become a monk or a nun to renounce 
the comforts of home and family life, to, to take the discipline of celibacy and poverty, uh, to shave the head, to wear robes, and to practice, to aim at practicing 24 hours a day, 24-7 really. The, the um, uh, mind leaving the home was a way of describing the, um, a mature layperson practitioner. Somebody who doesn't wear robes, who doesn't shave their head or wear special um, vestments. Um, somebody who lives at home in a house and who has many kinds of worldly cares um, which they need to look after but which, as Kazan says, um, they're like a lotuses which are not muddied by their circumstances. They can live in a busy city but be tranquil. They can live among all kinds of corruptions and yet remain pure. Um, and really, and I, we could add in here that they, that at this level of, of, of realization, they don't see their lives as distractions to their practice, but as the material of their daily Dharma practice. Um, then they're not attached even to enlightenment, certainly not to worldly things, but not to enlightenment either. And this would be how they, to, ha to have left the house in spirit, in other words, a kind of inner renunciation, a renunciation of the mind rather than the body so much. So then Shanavasa's question, has your body left the house or has your mind? You can under we can understand it in the light of these, this, this distinction between, between um, physical renunciation, you could say, and a, and a more, say, a spiritual renunciation. But beware of either-or questions from Zen masters. Uh, Upagupta, when he responds to this question, he, he gives a pretty straight answer. He's a monk, after all. He's, he's, he has left home. Um, he's actually left home. So he says, truly, it is my body that has left the house. But then Shanavasa comes back, the subtle Dharma of the Buddhas, what does it have to do with body and mind? So one of the points, if you're working on this koan, is to show what Shanavasa is saying here. Can body and mind be separated? The point in, in, in leaving home is to transcend all categories, to tr transcend all the ideas we have about reality, all the ways in which we create and kind of nest, uh, uh, mental, emotional nest for ourselves. And also to, to go beyond all um, sets of opposites, to see that all opposites are aspects of one whole. You, they, they, they define each other. 
and that, that includes mind and body. And this one's a big one for us as Westerners because our, our philosophical sort of inheritance is of our mind and body divorced from each other and one seen as, as um, corrupt body, is corrupt and earthly, and mind is, is, is separate from that and heavenly and pure. And this this is the, the force that we have to um, that we we the we the kind of the um, traumatized childrens of this of this divorce that goes back to Plato and all the other um, dichotomies self and other lay and ordained even Buddhist and non-Buddhist look at what troubles that distinction causes what it's what it's doing in Myanmar right now even enlightened and unenlightened has to go as I mentioned before that line from the Heart Sutra attainment too is emptiness got to throw it all on the pyre like like Upagupta threw those counters on on the pyre let them all burn up. Finally, the verse. House demolished, person extinguished. There is neither inside nor out. Where can body and mind hide their form? House demolished. Think here not only of the house, obviously, of of the house, uh, of the leaving of the house that um, is mentioned in, in Shanavasa's uh, question, has your body left the house or has your mind? But also the Buddha's words um, on, in the Dhammapada, he's referring to his own awakening. He says, I have gone through many rounds of birth and death, looking in vain for the builder of this body. Heavy indeed is birth and death again and again. But now I have seen you, house builder. You shall not build this house again. Its beams are broken, its dome is shattered. Self-will is extinguished, nirvana is attained. To see through that house, to, to smash its rafters, House demolished, person extinguished. This person who gets extinguished is the one we think we need to defend, to protect, to cherish. The one, the one that we that we favour. There is neither inside nor out. Is another way of talking about um, mind and body, the inner life and the, you know, the the external life. But each moment that we are alive, an exchange is going on, where 
things from the, from the outside are coming inside, things from the inside are coming outside. So that whole notion breaks down. Where can body and mind hide their form? So this is another, another point in the, in the koan that we have to demonstrate. Um, everything has been swept away here, house demolished, person extinguished, no inside or outside. But then the last line, where can body and mind hide their form? We sweep everything away, all is emptiness, and yet, and yet, and yet, something remains. What is that? Well, our time is up. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate Endless blind passions I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number blind passions I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha I vow to attain all beings without number I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain.